Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Today we're going to be talking about one of Arts Commission's, one of our own projects, uh, the Mississippi Folklife Journal. And joining me today is, via, via the remote world, is my colleague Maria Zarang. Maria, welcome. Hey, Larry. Thanks for having me on. I'm yeah. really excited about it. So today we wanted to kind of give some highlights to this Mississippi Folklife project that you've been running for us here at the Arts Commission. So tell people just overall, what, what is Mississippi Folklife and, and when, what do you do with it? You want me to start with a little bit of the history behind the journal or just kind of That would be great. Right yeah, just okay. a little bit of the history and then kind of what we're doing now. Well, um, the history of the journal is pretty impressive. It started back in 1927. It was first called the Mississippi Folklore Register. It was started by the Mississippi Folklore Society. And that was housed at the University of Mississippi. And then from 1927 to 1999, the journal operated kind of like as an academic folklore journal. And it was housed at a couple universities at Ole Miss, at the University of Southern Mississippi, and then back at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, where it was at the center for the study of Southern culture. And so it was at the center when it became Mississippi Folklife. And when it was at the center, it also shifted the focus of the journal. So it was kind of part academic journal, part cultural magazine. And um, it went out of print in 1999. But on MississippiFolklife.org, you can actually check out several of those issues from the 90s when it was at the Center uh, for the Study of Southern Culture. We digitized those, and you can check them out. They're really great. And then in 2012, it moved to the Mississippi Arts Commission. And there it became an online project, an online publication of the Folk and Traditional Arts Program. And then in 2015, it really kind of became the journal that it is today, Mississippi Folklife, just kind of this multimedia publication. So now here I'm continuing that work and I'm the managing editor of Mississippi Folklife. And the focus of today's journal is we're just trying to document the contemporary cultural heritage of Mississippi. We're looking at uh, contemporary traditions, expressive culture, traditional art, community customs and rituals, music, of course. We're in a very musical place. We also look at food traditions. It's a wide variety of the types of things that we cover. And our goal is mainly just to create um, an online platform that is accessible. So anyone who's interested in submitting, they have the opportunity to do so. And we've had a wide variety of contributors, artists, photographers, members of the community, journalists, freelance writers, professors, students. I mean, it really runs the gamut. So we've had since 2012, when it came to Mac, now we have 70 articles now. Well, over 70. I think about 74 now. So, yeah, that's kind of where we are now. So one of the things that we wanted to do today was kind of give the audience, give them a sampling of the type of things that they can learn about uh, when they visit Mississippi Folklife. 
And so let's let's bring on our first. We're going to have three different guests today who are either contributors or who've been featured artists on Mississippi Folk Life. So Maria, now we we have uh, someone who's joined us and uh, one of the featured artists on the Mississippi Folk Life uh, website. So why don't you introduce him and you guys start talking and I'll jump in as we go along. Well, Vishnoi is an Indian classical musician. He plays the sitar and now the harmonica. He's based in Clinton, Mississippi. And Vish was featured on Mississippi Folklife when we did an interview together to talk about sitar music and his apprenticeship with his teacher, Hiranmai Goswami, who's also based in Mississippi. So welcome to the show, Vish. Why don't you start out the interview? Let's talk about the sitar. Can you briefly describe the sitar for those not familiar with the instrument? Uh, The sitar is a very ancient uh, instrument. It is made up of gold and uh, the neck is made up of wood. And it has approximately 20 strings. And uh, the main string is called as the Baj, B-A-J, Baj string. And that is the string that we use to play the melody. The rest of the strings are supporting strings. The sitar is uh, unique in the sense uh, you cannot find it all over the world. It's found only in certain parts of the world, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and maybe a few other countries. So I'm lucky to learn this instrument in Mississippi. You know, I did not know anything about this instrument when I first came to Mississippi in 2004. Uh, I was blessed to meet my teacher and uh, I have been learning sitar for last uh, 16 years. What got you initially interested in learning? What, what was it about the instrument that drew you to it? Uh, I didn't know much about music when I came to Mississippi in 2004. I saw my teacher playing the sitar at a friend's party and I was mesmerized. I was just taken aback and I wanted to learn that instrument. So I approached my teacher and uh, requested him to teach me. And he just told me one sentence. He said, are you going to practice? You know, I said, I will try. He said, if you don't practice, the lessons will stop. He gave me a very stern warning. And that sent some chills up my spine. And I, I never uh, stopped practicing. Can you tell us a little bit about that apprenticeship with your teacher? And maybe talk a little bit about who your teacher was and his background. My teacher is a retired civil engineer. He learned sitar from Ravi Shankar's student. You know, the famous Ravi Shankar, who's a master sitarist who played in Woodstock and other uh, concerts. And he's world-renowned. And his student's name is Pradyumno Das. And my teacher learned from Pradyumno Das for seven years. And he practiced four hours every day for seven years. And then when he came to United States, uh, he, I met him. And uh, he taught me whatever Ravi Shankar taught Pradyumna Das and Pradyumna Das taught him. So this particular music has to be learned from a teacher. You cannot learn it from a book or on uh, uh, internet. You have to go to a teacher and uh, you have to spend several years with a teacher to learn this music. 
This music was created maybe in the 1800 AD, and it has been passed on from uh, teachers to students over the last several centuries. So this music is uh, unique in the sense uh, you have to learn it from a teacher and you have to spend a lot of years. So I spent 16 years with my teacher. So I would get a lesson every week. He would uh, teach me for an hour every Sunday and he will teach me about two lines. And then I have to practice those two lines for the rest of the week. And then when I came for the next lesson, he would ask me to play those two lines. And if I didn't do well, he would say, no more uh, lessons. You have to learn these two lines first. So I would uh, stay in the night, you know, because, you know, I was working as a physician, so I didn't have a whole lot of time to practice. So just on Saturday night, I would sit all night and practice so that I could get those two lines perfect and uh, uh, play for him. And then he would he would go on to the next two lines. So a melody called Raga would take about uh, three to four months for completion for the entire melody, which is called Raga. So he has taught me approximately 24 to 25 Ragas in the last uh, 16 years. You're listening to the Arts Hour on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Larry Morrissey, and I'm joined today by my colleague Maria Zarang. And we're talking about Mississippi Folklife, the online journal. And uh, right now we're talking with Ms. Shinoy, who is one of the featured artists on the Mississippi Folklife Journal. So tell us about a lot of work goes into the into the learning. What about performing? Where are opportunity where are the opportunities you've had to, to perform in public? To perform in front of people, it takes a lot of practice. So it took me approximately three years before I could uh, perform in front of people. You know, it was uh, nerve wracking when the first when first time I tried to play. And uh, sitar music, 10 to 20% is uh, what your teacher teaches you. And the rest is improvisation on the spot. So to do the improvisation, you have to practice a lot. You have to listen to a lot of music and you have to practice some improvisation yourself. So normally you have to play with the percussionist. So sitar uh, is a solo instrument in the sense uh, you don't have a whole lot of other musicians backing you. So you have only one percussionist. So you and the percussionist have to play together for 25 to 30 minutes. So each raga, you know, takes 20 to 30 minutes to play. You know, you have to go through four stages. The first stage is called the alap. Alap is uh, the percussionist doesn't play any music during alap. You know, during alap, you are slowly improvising and uh, building up the tempo for the raga. Then comes so-called gut, which is a slow progression of the raga. And at that time, the percussionist joins you. And then you speed up and you go to something called drut. The last stage is called jhala, which is very fast. So during all these sessions, both the percussionist and the uh, sitarist keep on improvising. So when I improvise, the sitarist improvises, the percussionist keeps a steady beat. And then when I hold the melody and play the melody again and again and again, the percussionist improvises. 
So that goes on throughout the whole uh, musical uh, piece. There is constant improvisation by both the percussionist and the sitarist. And you can play for 10 minutes, you can play for a whole hour, depending upon how much you can improvise and how good you are in improvisation. And the ragas, they are amazing uh, pieces created several centuries ago. And each rag, uh, raga or rag gives you an emotion. Some ragas make you sad, some ragas make you very happy, some ragas make you romantic. So each ragas have a, a different flavor. Well, I wanted to talk briefly about recently you've taken up the harmonica and kind of incorporated that into classical music. Can you talk about your recent foray into harmonica playing? You know, after the coronavirus, everybody is in lockdown. So I could not take any more lessons from my teacher. So I practiced whatever my teacher taught me. And then uh, I was fascinated with the harmonica also. So I started on my own playing harmonica and try to incorporate the sitar uh, melodies into the harmonica. Over time, you know, I could uh, play one rag very easily on the harmonica. And I kept improvising on it. And then I created a, a small melody called a Challenge to Breathe. And uh, that was aired on uh, Grassroots on uh, MPB. I find the harmonica fascinating, you know, and you can do a lot of rifts on the harmonica. So I'm uh, trying to incorporate sitar music in the, into harmonica. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morris, your host for today. And today we're talking about Mississippi Folk Life, uh, the pro- one of the projects of the Arts Commission. And uh, along with me is my coworker, Maria Zarang, and she's going to introduce our next guest. Hey, thanks, Larry. Maria here. Addie Kitchens is a writer from Clarksdale. She's also a member of the Mississippi Folk Life editorial team. So she uh, is a part of the group that helps edits all of the articles that appear in Mississippi Folk Life. And she's written three pieces for us. One is A Return to Dudaville. That article is based in Jackson. And today we're going to focus on her two Clarksdale pieces. One is about early right, and that piece is titled The Soul Man of Clarksdale, Not a Eulogy. And the other one is about Messenger's Pool Hall in Clarksdale. The title of that piece is Where the Locals Go. 
So welcome, Addie. Thanks for joining us today. Why don't we start the interview off talking about your hometown? Just kind of talk about writing about your hometown and what you were hoping to accomplish with these two pieces about early write and Messenger's Pool Hall. Well, um, I write fiction mostly, but writing about my hometown became something I did to express what I felt about being from there because it's such a unique place to be from. For me, it's the Mississippi Delta, and there are so many stereotypes um, associated with the Deep South and Black folk from the Deep South. And I just wanted to try to correct some of those misconceptions and show how colorful and vibrant and musical the world I came from is. And I, I want to use these pieces to do that, to shine a spotlight on, you know, something other than abject poverty. Yeah. You know, it's always bad news from there, you know. Yeah, well. Um, it's actually a beautiful little place. Well, in writing these two pieces, do you think that your perspective on Clarksdale has changed a little bit? Did it kind of impact look uh, Clarksdale looking at it from a distance? Yes, because it used to be, you know, when I first went to college, there were such negative connotations coming from it. I left for college in the late 90s. And so at that time, there was a lot of gang violence in a very small town. And so I used to be ashamed to be from Clarksdale. But then when I started understanding the nature of systems and the world, I understand it's just, you know, happens to be in the Mississippi Delta and happens to be in an impoverished place, but it's very rich in culture. And, you know, these two pieces help adjust that for me. You know, it's been a process of learning to love being from there, being proud of being from there. So they, that help. these two pieces help me sharpen that love and desire to show it in its complex beauty to the world. The, the piece on Early Wright, of course, Early Wright, who is, is not known as well as some of the musicians from Clarksdale, but within Clarksdale, he is a legendary figure. Maybe just first tell people a little about who he was and, and what his importance was to Clarksdale. So Early Wright was, he's considered the first black DJ in the um, Deep South. And he was moved to Clarksdale at an early age, and he was... Um, an announcer for different gospel bands. And so when he was out doing one of those announcements, um, a local um, business owner fell in love with his voice and how he did the announcements. And so they wanted him to come on um, a call records on the radio. And so he had very um, mixed feelings about doing it because he was a deeply religious man. And so he didn't necessarily want to call the blues or what they call it. But he ended up doing it, and he ended up for decades being the voice of um, WROX in Clarksdale. He was credited with um, interviewing some of the greatest voices in blues and rock and roll in the 50s and 60s. And so everyone loved coming on the show. He was an eloquent speaker, and um, he is instrumental in um, blues culture in Clarksdale. Was he a family friend? Did you know him personally? He was a family friend. He used to come to my church a lot. Um, I went to New Jerusalem Missionary Baptist Church. And when I was growing up, the pastor was Reverend J.B. Woods. He would, um, Mr. Early Wright would come in and do like 
sound when he would record um, sermons and stuff. But he and our pastor were very good friends. And he would regularly be at church doing the sound. And I just remember seeing him all the time. You know, the older people in my family knew him well. I just knew him as Mr. Wright, the older guy that was, you know, the pe- the preacher's friend. I was 18 or 17. And so it, it, he hardly kind of like registered until I really figured out who he was because he was so unassuming. Well, tell us about kind of, you know, so in his on his show, he would he would have a blues segment. He would have a gospel segment. Talk about that kind of in having that duality in the community. Obviously, he was a he was a religious man, you know, being active, you know, in churches, but also had, you know, an appreciation of the blues. Was that talk about that, you know, having to, you know, how how he made those things work together? I think um, he called the blues as a soul man and. um he called um, the um, gospel religious records as Brother Early. And so there was an obvious duality there. You know, he didn't even do it under the same name. And I think for, you know, maybe that's how he navigated doing something that he at first thought was self-religious. But, um, yeah, we li- we listened to the blues and gospel um, early, right? And um, like I mentioned in the article, we would ride to Memphis to go shop and we would listen to him all the way. Or we listened to him. His voice was like instantly recognizable. And so, you know, he was kind of the voice. I didn't even connect him to his voice. And I'm like, that's, they're the same person. So that, that's just how much the duality was. And it might've been deeper than that because he was very unassuming. So he was the soul man. He was brother early, but he also was, everyone's friend and a genuine good man he was also that but i know that it did bother him at first and you know i think that's why he used two distinctly different personas but you know the duality between blues and religion is just like so the blues is very sensual even though it came out of work songs it came out of call and response songs for worship I mean, you know, some blues songs didn't even change the lyrics. They're like, you know, you didn't have to love me, but you did, like you did, but you did, but you did. Lord, we we sang that in church. So it's like the blue, the duality of the blues itself. That's how you perform. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. And today, Maria Zarang, co-worker of mine, and I, we're talking to a number of people who have either uh, written for Mississippi Folklife or who have been featured as artists. Right now, we're talking with Addie Kitchens. And um, Maria, let's maybe let's move into talk a little bit about Addie's piece about Messenger's Pool Hall. Yeah, okay. So this piece is entitled Where the Locals Go. And Addie, why don't you introduce us to George Messenger in the pool hall, and what was his place in the pool hall's place in the community? Messenger's pool hall, um, at the pool hall in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And the whole time I was growing up, the um, proprietor of the pool hall was George Messenger. And George Messenger was the grandson of the original owner of um, Messenger's um, Lounge, who was um, Edward Messenger. So for all the years of our life, Mr. Messenger uh, was synonymous with um, with Messenger's Pool Hall. And it was a place where you could go listen to the jukebox. You could listen to live music. Um, you could just go play, you know, play dominoes or do all that kind of stuff. You know, like the, the chill spot in the neighborhood. 
what I'm interested in too is what was your research like for doing this piece on Mr. Messenger? Did you do a lot of interviews? I did a lot of interviews. So Mr. George Messenger is my uncle's brother-in-law. And so my aunt, Marcella, Marcella Messenger is George's uh, sister. And so um, when I um, first, I guess, you know, it's the same thing with Mr. Early Wright. I just did not recognize my entire life how historically significant these places were. Just thought it was Messenger's Lounge, not that it had been 100 years in the same family. But anyway, when I got the idea to do the article, the first thing I did was um, ask my aunt, Marcella, if I could have an interview. And so I went home, I drove up from New Orleans last Christmas, and we were going out delivering Christmas gifts. My mom rocks everybody, wraps everybody's Christmas gifts, and um, we just go out and deliver them to everybody. And so like the day before Christmas, or two days before Christmas, I was delivering this Christmas gift, and it happened to be that Marcella and her older brother, Edward, Edwards was in, he was in town too. So they were sitting there together and I was like, let me get these questions now because he lives in Denver. And so it was just, you know, a blessing that I caught them together. So I used mostly those interviews, what they remembered of the place. And I also um, very much depended on uh, a Vimeo documentary about the messengers because it was Mr. Messenger in his own words. And so those are the primary sources I used. I did have, my mom and my sent me the pictures of the original liquor licenses and stuff that uh, I was able to get, but I couldn't find them when I was trying to give them to you for the article. Yeah. But I hope they can be amended. Talk about, you, you talk a little bit in the article about kind of the blues music and its connection to messengers. What, I mean, I think it's both kind of literal and metaphorical. And I was hoping you could kind of comment on that a little bit as well. Yeah, it was a, a, a juke joint, and, you know, it was a place where the blues was played, the blues was listened to, and the blues were, was lived in Messengers, right outside, I think above that building is where W.C. Handy um, lived, um, while in his part, you know, in his time at Clarksdale, while he was first developing his music, so, I mean, the whole spot, um, the whole area of downtown was just like, the beginnings of the blues as we recognize it, the modern blues, you know, that whole historical area of Clarksville, downtown Clarksville, they used to play the blues out in, in front of the building. Yeah, I wanted to ask real quick about the New World neighborhood in Clarksdale. It seemed like just such an interesting melting pot, and you mentioned it in the article, and I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about it. Yeah, I also did research at the Mississippi Blues Commission, and that's actually where I got that information. Even though I had been passing, there's a sign outside of Messengers that says New World Neighborhood. Then I've been passing by, like, forever, like, just going over my head. But it was um, the area in um, Clarksdale where people from everywhere, you know, were in that spot, and all kinds of things was going were going down, legal and illegal, I wish somebody would make a movie about it, but um, it's an area where, you know, brothels were popular, music was popular, and, you know, you had Jewish people, Italian people, Syrians, Greeks, Lebanese, all of those people. It was kind of like 
like before it's time. All those people congregated in that spot, sharing culture, sharing music, being human. Well, Addie, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this segment. Uh, folks can read uh, your two pieces on Clarksdale as well as the one on the, is it Duddleville or Dudaville? Yeah, Doodleville. Doodleville. They call it Doodleville in Doodleville. And the Doodleville neighborhood in they Jackson. They call it Doodleville or Doodleville. Doodle, okay, your choice. Uh, neighbor, a neighborhood in Jackson that she, <laughs> she wrote about, all on uh, Mississippi Folk Life. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey and joining me today as co-host is my co-worker Maria Zarang and we're talking about the Mississippi Folklife Journal and we're talking with different folks that were artists who were featured as well as uh, contributors and Maria who do we have next to speak to on the Arts Hour? Yeah, thanks, Larry. All right, next up we have Lee Harper, and Lee is an artist based in Oxford, Mississippi, and she's been creating historical dioramas where miniature skeletons act out historical scenes, cultural customs, and a lot of other different stuff, all under the name of History Bones, and she recently released a book about her miniatures of Oxford places called Tiny Oxford Volume 1, and Lee was featured in a Mississippi Folklife article that we did. We uh, sat down at her studio in Oxford, and we put the conversation on Mississippi Folklife, so you could check that out on MississippiFolklife.org. But uh, welcome, Lee. Thanks for being Thank here you. with us. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we start out the interview with this? Why don't you describe History Bones? How do you describe this project to people? Tell us about it. Well, it started honestly about 13 or 14 years ago uh as a lark it was a reaction to my uh hatred of elf on the shelf <laughs> and uh it's i thought instead for my child i'll do a tiny skeleton the week of halloween and he'll do something funny every day and he doesn't tattle or spy on you and it'll just be fun and each year he got a little more involved like with costumes or what he, what kind of adventures he was up to. And after about five Halloweens, I realized I was liking doing this a lot better, a lot more than uh, my son and my nieces and nephews <laughs> were. <laughs> and so I just kind of took it over. Um, and I thought I'll do some historical uh, scenes, just whatever I want to do. And my husband was putting them on Facebook and I didn't even know it. And people actually liked them. So I thought, hey, wow, that's, wow, that's crazy. So anyway, it just kind of organically came about and it has gotten more and more detailed over the years and just grown into its own little world. And uh, I like to try to pick things from history that aren't that well known or that are outrageous or like amazing that I think 
people would love to know about. Um, I don't want to just talk about the stuff that everybody already knows about. It's been really fun, and I've had a, a great reaction. There, there are multiple images of it on the, the Folklife article about about your work, but maybe you could pick one out and kind of describe a sample one, what, what all is in as part of it. Well, one of my favorites is the Ray Harryhausen piece, and he was kind of the one of the fathers of uh, stop motion special effects in sci-fi way back when. I mean, the movies kind of look crude to us now, but at the time, they were just revolutionary. And the scene is his studio where he is actually working on miniatures. So it's a miniature scene of him working on the scene from Jason and the Argonauts, the skeleton army scene, and he's sitting arranging his little pieces. So I thought that is such a cool idea. Um, And he's such a hero of mine because obviously the skeleton army would have been a huge influence on me when, when I was young watching that. But um, I just love that. And it's got little bitty items and figures from a lot of his movies, Cyclops and the Medusa character and um, sketches and, backdrops and stuff for other movies that he's used and he's got his signature um button-up cardigan on he looks like the you know the sweetest grandfatherly figure and he just made amazing just amazing pieces uh he influenced people huge creators tim burton the lord of the ring fella i can't guillermo del toro lots of these fellows cite him as one of their major influences. So that was a really fun piece. Well, why don't you talk to us about your process, you know, from idea to research to actually making these miniatures? Well, some ideas are just present themselves more visually than others. Some are are really great stories, but there's not a great way to show them. Some things I happen upon while researching something else. You just go down these rabbit holes and you're like, hey, wait, what's that? Put a pin in that. Put that on the list. Just things that are just amazing that we've just never heard of. I I mean, there's only so much room in the history books, you know, to get commonly covered. And there's just an infinite world of amazing people and stories and old customs, you know, that's just, I've always been very curious about all that. And I get really excited talking about, <laughs> about them. And it's just another way to tell those stories. So it's I have a blast doing it. And it's 100% mine. That's, that's the other thing. I've always been a freelance artist. And I paint and make things for people. But History Bones is 100% mine. You're listening to the Arts Hour on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Today we're talking about the Mississippi Folklife Online Journal, and Lee Harper is our guest in this segment. And um, so uh, I'm just curious if, uh, you know, it kind of came out, uh, it kind of built steam through social media, but pre-COVID, do you display these publicly in a gallery or other spaces? How do, how do people get to interact with them? I've had a couple of shows. I think three times they've all been somewhere. And that was really fun because they are a lot different in person as opposed to uh, social media. I forget that because I'm looking at them all the time. But even my parents were like, whoa, oh my gosh, we did not know (laughs) there was that much detail. And it's fun because you keep finding things, you know, if you move around the piece. Because my favorite part is all the little details, sometimes little hidden details uh, that if you look long enough, 
you know, you get rewarded with finding something. I'm a, kind of a history nerd. I've said that many times, but it's true. Uh, I didn't even like history in school, but the past several years, I've just become almost obsessed with, I mean, it's just storytelling, which I just love any form of. Uh, okay, so Lee, why don't you tell us a little bit about how storytelling plays a role in your work? For some reason, I think it's important to bring some of these old customs and people back into the timeline. I think recent events and the craziness of our world, somehow it's reassuring to see these old pieces where you realize, oh, we were always nuts. So it's going to be okay. <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't just wonderful and then now it's a mess. It's always been just a, a beautiful mess, you know. But I mean, seriously, I've found so many people that are just incredible figures. Their movie scripts are already written for them that people need to know about some of these folks. The list, I mean, I, I would never finish the list of things I would like to do pieces of. How many pieces do you have now? I would say probably around 35 or so. Some, I have some little abbreviated pieces that I did recently because um, I'm supposed to be working on a History Bones book with a tiny little publisher. And so they didn't need a full scale diorama because the photos are going to be limited in the book. But they, those are, uh, we tried to get some more international ones. So, um, you know, we'd be representing lots of different countries and cultures. Uh, some really cool, really cool stories. <laughs> some you have to, you have to check the background on three or four places because they just seem unbelievable. You think this cannot be true. And they, they are. I want to ask you a quick question. How many... How big is your list? How many projects do you have on that list? Do you even know? There are probably, oh gosh, because I have a history bones list and then I have a list for places I want to make like the tiny Oxford pieces. There's probably 30 to 40 places, pieces I want to do for history bones. And then for the tiny Oxford type places I wanted to do, there's several places in Mississippi I'd want to do. There's several places in New Orleans I'd love to do, especially because since COVID, some of these historic restaurants and bars are actually closing down and it feels good to be able to recreate them, especially when the building like facade is not there anymore. Um, I really like that where you couldn't actually go and look at the thing anymore. Tell us about the tiny Oxford project and how that it's related to History Bones, but it's different. It is. Um, the powerhouse here in Oxford, the Arts Center, They every year at Christmas, they have an ornament auction. And it's their huge fundraiser, and I always try to make something really cool. Mine is never quite an ornament. It's just a piece. <laughs> and last year, I always try to make something very nostalgic because the more money it makes, the more money, obviously, the powerhouse gets. So I thought, since Ron Shapiro passed last year, I thought, hey, I'm going to make a tiny hoka because the building's not here anymore. And people love the hoka. It's so special. And Ronzo was so special. I'm going to make one of those for the auction. And I'm telling you, the response was incredible. 
the stories that people relayed. It was just, it was so amazing. So I thought, I'm going to do some other places around here. And plus people commission pieces from me as well. And all of a sudden I had several, I call them old Oxford because all but one of the pieces in the book do not exist here anymore. And I thought, I asked my friend Pablo Johnson, uh, who's a wonderful photographer in New Orleans, like, hey, we should put these together in a book. I mean, I have a lot of these. And so we did. And that's how Tiny Oxford came around. But I mean, I we called it volume one because I still have a list of a lot of places here in this tiny little town that I'd like to do. What are some of the other uh, places featured in, in the book? We've got the gin, which is a notorious <laughs> bar from back in the day. Everybody has stories from their days at the gin. Smitty's, which also has tons of stories. I did Shadow Lawn which obviously still exists. That's the Nelson house that lots of tourists mistake as Roanoke. That's on South 11th. Let's say Dino's Pizza, which was on the square, which that got amazing stories. Every time I'd post anything from these, people would be like, oh, my parents and I used to go and then we'd order this and we would play this on the jukebox and stuff. Just incredible, right? I don't know if you guys know are familiar with this, but um, there was a woman named Kylie Rogers that lived here, and she made herself a stick fence that went around this gigantic yard herself, and she was an elderly woman when she did this, and painted it white, and the whole town knew about this yard, and in the spring, she had purple flowers that just exploded all over the yard, and I'm telling you, that's one of the first things I remember when we moved here. I used to drive out of my way to go see this this yard. It was so striking. I did that, and I thought, well, I don't know if people will remember this like I do. Wow, they did, and I, that was really fun. I spoke to family members of hers, and of course, it's been bulldozed down, and condos and stuff are here now, but um, that is a wonderful old landmark. And then Isaiah's Busy Bee Cafe, that was another local favorite. That was run by the woman. She cooked for two chancellors for like 30 years at Ole Miss. And when she retired, she's like, well, I'm making my own business. (laughs) So uh, people loved that. She had no set menu. It was like going to your grandmother's, like whatever she was cooking, that's what you ate. You know, there was no, you didn't order. You just sat down and got a plate. I think it's a really neat, special collection of just really nostalgic spots here. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, preservation work in a way. I mean, you really document right. these Well, places. the other fun part of that was like a lot of these, you have to remember back in the 80s and stuff, we didn't have our cell phones where we don't have a million pictures of each place. You know, you had your little crummy wind up camera the little, he took it into Eckerd's or whatever to get it developed and hope they came out. So I actually met several new friends researching and putting a call out for photos of some of these places because there might be, like the gym was notoriously hard to find pictures of. And when I say pictures, I don't mean just one. You have to have several angles and the details and 
you know, the color, it might not be in color, like asking people little bitty details. It was really fun. It was really fun. And folks were wonderful in helping out. So Lee, before we shut up, complete this section, give us some detail, give us the name and, and details about the book one more time. It's um, Tiny Oxford, volume one. It's a, it's a small book, but honestly, we just, we put it together really quickly and we're like, hey, let's just go for it. Let's just try it and see if this gets any response or anything. And it, it's been welcomed, I think, warmly. I think it's really fun. It's a great little gift. Anybody that's, anybody that was in school here in the 80s or 90s, up until now, anybody that grew up here, I think will appreciate the, the spots that are in it. And uh, can you say your Instagram handle? Because that's where people can see a lot of your work. Well, for tiny Oxford pieces, it would be um, Tiny History Studios on Instagram. And that's a little baby. <laughs> we just started it. <laughs> and when I say we, my friend Pablo Johnson uh, took all the photos and basically laid the whole book out. He's amazing. And for History Bones, it's History Bones on Instagram. That's mainly, the, yeah, mainly History, history Bones on Instagram. But um, I'm also on Facebook under Lee Harper. And I post a ton of like progress shots and all kinds of behind the scenes things for my little miniatures and commissions and stuff. Well, Lee, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This was fun. Uh, yeah, and, thanks, and, and, and thank you, Maria, for, for coming on and telling us about Mississippi Folklife. Give the address for the Mississippi Folklife Journal one more time. Okay, yeah. Thanks, Larry. I had a lot of fun today. To check out more on Mississippi Folklife, just visit www.mississippifolklife.org. Very good. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.